Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And I don't feel like I need to say much about myself at this point after Richard's introduction, but it has been quite a while since I have been here with you. So if you're new to the church and you don't know who I am, that's totally okay. I was scheduled to be here a couple of times last summer, but well, we all know what happened. But it's good to be with you again after such a long absence. We're going to be looking at John chapter 16 this morning, starting in verse 4b. And yes, I said verse 4b. That's the second half of verse 4. This is a good reminder to us that the chapters and verses in our Bibles are not divinely inspired. They weren't added until the New Testament, until the mid-16th century. And sometimes the editors miss the mark in dividing up the text. So we're going to be picking up in the middle of verse 4, but we're going to be starting a new section in Jesus' farewell discourse. So if you would, please give your attention with me to God's word. This is Jesus speaking. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we thank you also that you have given us your spirit to help us to understand your word. And we pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that um, you would shine light upon this word, and so we might have a, a greater understanding of who you are and your work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, working with college students, one of the things that reminds me that I'm getting older is that there is less and less overlap in the pop cultural references that we have. So many of the, the TV shows and movies that I grew up and love, my students have never heard of. And one of those movies is the 1999 classic Office Space, which is about this company called Inatech that is downsizing. And they, they have these two Bobs, Bob Slidell and Bob Porter, who are brought in to help the company with their downsizing. And, and part of their process is to bring in all of the employees and interview them about their specific job responsibilities. And there's one particular interview with a man named Tom Simkowski, whose job, as we learn, is to take specs from the customers and to give them to the software engineers. So in this interview, the first Bob asks, well, why couldn't the customers take the specs 
directly to the software people. And Tom says, well, well, I'll tell you why. Because engineers, they're not good at dealing with people. Sorry if there's any engineers here this morning. And so then to clarify, the other Bob asks him, so you physically take the specs from the customers. And Bob, or excuse me, Tom says, well, uh, no, my, my secretary does that. Or, or sometimes they just fax it in. So then the first Bob asks him, but then you physically take the specs to the software people? And Tom says, uh, well, no, uh, sometimes. And so then confused, the, the second Bob leans in and he says, what would you say that you do here? And Tom says, I already told you, I deal with the customers so that the engineers don't have to. I've got people skills. Can't you see that? <laughs> but that question what would you say you do here? I think it's one that many Christians would like to ask to the Holy Spirit. What exactly is the Holy Spirit's job? What does he do? When it comes to the Trinity, the one God in three persons, we generally have an idea that God the Father is the one to whom we pray. He is the one who plans and provides for our lives. We, we know well, or we may have at least heard, that God the Son accomplish salvation for us by dying on the cross. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, things start to get a little fuzzier. Maybe you've heard other people talk about the Holy Spirit leading them or even speaking to them, but you may have never experienced that yourself. And so you may wonder, is the Holy Spirit operative in my life? If he is, what is he doing? Well, who better to tell us than the one who promised he would send the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this, this section that we're reading this morning is a part of Jesus' farewell discourse, which he spoke to his disciples on the night before he died. And throughout this farewell discourse, which runs from John 13 through 17, Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit several times. But here, he picks up this, this subject of the Holy Spirit once more, and he gives us a fuller description of what the Holy Spirit does. Now, he doesn't give us a comprehensive job description in just a few verses. You know, in order to get that, we would really need to survey the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament. But here, Jesus gives us a foundational understanding to the work of the Holy Spirit. But before we go any further... You may be wondering, hey, Weston, do I really need to know this? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, first of all, we're so glad you're here, but you might be thinking, is this really important for my understanding of Christianity? Or even if you are here this morning as a Christian, you still might be wondering, hey, is this one of just those bit of theological minutiae? those academic doctrine that it's really irrelevant to my daily life, is this really important? And I would argue that the answer to both of those questions is yes. This is both important and relevant. And, and I'm not the only person who would say that. In the early centuries of the church, when Christianity was just emerging from its infancy, church leaders got together for the first time, and they wanted to answer two big questions. The first one was, who is Jesus? What does it mean that he is the Son of God? And the second one was, who is the Holy Spirit? What role does he play in all of this? 
so from the very beginning, the church has believed that understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what he does is an essential part of the Christian faith. So my hope is that today you'll see Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit as both relevant and crucial to the Christian life. So today, Jesus is going to tell us three things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit convicts, and the Holy Spirit clarifies. So first, the Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus starts this passage by referencing a point that he has made over and over in the farewell discourse, and that is that he is going away. That's why it's called the farewell discourse. And this time, Jesus gently chides his disciples by pointing out to them that none of them are asking him where he's going. Now, if you were to go back and read the farewell discourse in its entirety, you would realize that actually on two previous occasions, Peter and then Thomas pose a question about Jesus' departure. So why does Jesus say that no one asks him where he is going? Well, it's because they're not really asking him where he's going because they don't really want to know. We can imagine what this is like. Think of a father and a son who are playing catch in the backyard. But the father is an ER doctor who's on call, and so his cell phone rings, and he suddenly has to quit playing catch and go to the hospital. The son would probably ask him, where are you going? And even though that's the question that he's saying, that's not the question that he's asking. The question that he's really asking is, why are you leaving me? He is sad because of his father's impending absence. And that's the sort of a situation that the apostles are in. They haven't really asked where Jesus is going because they're just absorbed with their own sadness. They want to know why Jesus is abandoning them and what they're supposed to do without him. And Jesus recognizes their sadness over their situation in verse 6. He says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But he insists, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper, which is just another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says that it is better that he goes away because then the Holy Spirit can come. But why is it an advantage that the Holy Spirit comes? Well, that's partially what we're going to talk about for the rest of the sermon. But before we get there, let me just give you two answers here. It's better that the Holy Spirit comes because the Holy Spirit mediates Christ's presence. Though Jesus was fully divine and fully human, because of his humanity, he is limited to being in only one place at one time. He couldn't minister to everyone everywhere all of the time. And yet, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says things like, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And I will be with you always, to the end of the age. How can Jesus say that? Well, Because the Holy Spirit would come to mediate Jesus' presence so that he is with all believers at all times. Second, it's better that the Holy Spirit comes because he applies Christ's benefits. So when Jesus says that he is going away, he is referring to a string of events that's about to take place. In going away, Jesus is going to die, 
and then he's going to rise again, and then he's going to ascend up into heaven, and, and on the day of Pentecost, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, he applies all that Christ has accomplished through these redemptive events to us. The Holy Spirit takes these objective and historical facts about Jesus, and he makes them subjective and personal realities in our lives. In other words, the things that happened 2,000 years ago to Jesus happened to you. The redemption accomplished by Jesus becomes a living reality in our lives when the Holy Spirit comes. Okay, but if we're getting down to brass tacks, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that if you're a Christian, you are actually in a better position, spiritually speaking, than the apostles were when Jesus spoke these words to them. Sometimes when I'm talking to students on campus, I ask them, what they would want to experience in order to really strengthen their faith. And sometimes I get an answer like this. They say, I just want to go back and be with Jesus. I want to, I want to see him healing people. I want to hear him teaching. I think it would just be awesome if I could have experienced what the apostles experienced. But here, Jesus is telling us that we have it better than they did because we now have the Holy Spirit. Now that the Holy Spirit has come, we have more of Jesus, not less of him. That's why the apostles were sad. They thought they were losing Jesus. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was going to give, him, give them more of himself by going away. And so now, if you're a Christian, Christ truly is with us always. And he's not only with us, He is in us. We are united in Christ in such a way that he is in us and we are in him. So even though we didn't witness his death and resurrection and ascension, just like the apostles did, because of our union with Christ, we experience his death and resurrection and ascension by the Holy Spirit. His death becomes our death as our old self, with all of its sin, was nailed to the cross. His resurrection becomes our resurrection as his new life is already at work within us. And as Ephesians 2 says, his ascension means that we are already raised with him in the heavenly places. That's why it's better that Jesus would go away. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he gives us all that Christ has to offer us. But before we can receive all that Christ has to offer, something else has to happen. And that brings us to our second point, which is that the Holy Spirit convicts. This is what Jesus goes on to say about the Holy Spirit in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world. Now, I want to take a moment to define two important words in that phrase, convict and the world. So first, when we hear the word convict, we, we might think about Think of it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we talk of someone being convicted of a crime. This is an objective sense in which some, some declaration is made of someone. But we can also talk about conviction in terms of uh, a sense of conviction. This, this is the, the subjective sense in which something rises up from within someone. But, but neither of those is exactly what Jesus means by the word. Because when he talks about the Holy Spirit's conviction, he is talking about 
how the Holy Spirit is going to bring people to a realization of their guilt based on the evidence of their lives. So it's almost a combination of the two definitions. It's a subjective conviction based upon our objective guilt. The second word that we need to understand in that phrase is the world. And the world in John doesn't simply mean the earth. It refers to God's created world in rebellion against its maker. So for example, in John 15, Jesus says that the world will hate you because it hated me. So when we put these two terms together, what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to bring people who are opposed to God to a realization of their guilt. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then in verses 9 through 11, he expands on each of those. Now, I'm going to be honest. When I, when I first read Jesus' explanation, I, I couldn't immediately discern the connections that he was drawing. I felt like his explanation needed an explanation. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus is saying that sin is rooted in unbelief. Sin is not just our fault in doing the wrong things or our failure to do the right things. Sin is a disposition of resistance towards God. And here, it specifically means a refusal to acknowledge and accept Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So the Holy Spirit convicts people of their denial of God. Second, Jesus says in verse 10 that the Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What's the connection there? Well, when Jesus was exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father, he was vindicated as the one who was truly righteous. But the world has rejected his righteousness in order to set up its own standards of righteousness. Let me give you an example of this. The third commandment tells us that true righteousness looks like reverence for God's name. And yet we know that many people today throw around God's name like it's nothing. They use the name of Jesus like it's their own personal expletive. Now, at the same time, we also know that there are some words in our society which are so politically incorrect that you would likely immediately get fired if you said them in the workplace. Now, I'm not commenting on the, the appropriateness of saying those words. What I'm trying to help us to see, though, is that the world has rejected the righteousness of revering God's name and made politically correct language its own form of moral righteousness. And the Holy Spirit convicts people that this is a false righteousness compared to the true righteousness that Jesus teaches and embodies for us. Now third, in verse 11, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is is judged. So again, the Holy Spirit demonstrates that the, the world's moral judgment is wrong. Their judgment about Jesus is wrong. And the world's judgment is not just an error of ignorance. It's actually because they are aligned with the ruler of this world, that is, with Satan. 
And because Satan stands condemned by the triumph of the cross, the Holy Spirit convicts people that they also stand condemned because of their wrong judgment. Okay, I know that was a lot of explanation, so you might be wondering, so what? Well, if I can just zoom out and look at the big picture for a moment, Jesus is saying that if left to ourselves, we would never come to know the truth about ourselves or about God. We need something outside of us to show us that we need Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he causes us to see that we are not basically good people with a few imperfections sprinkled on top. We are a sinful people whose lives are a denial of God. And the Holy Spirit shows us that our self-righteousness All of the things that make us feel good about ourselves don't stand up before God. In the language of Isaiah, they are filthy rags before him. And the Holy Spirit also opens our eyes to our spiritual blindness. He shows us that the things that we judge as good and right may actually be more aligned with the purposes of Satan than with the purposes of God. And he does all of this Because he loves us. He wants us to receive the grace that is offered to us in Christ. But in order to receive all that Christ offers us, we have to know our need of Christ. In order to receive Christ's forgiveness, in order to receive Christ's righteousness given to us, in order to be freed from our condemnation, we have to realize the guilty condition that we are in. And so if you are here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian, it's only because the Holy Spirit first convicted you. Now, allow me to continue addressing the Christians in the room for a moment. This also means that we are not responsible for convicting others. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not ours. The Holy Spirit may use us in the process, but ultimately, he is the one who convicts, not us. And for some of you, I hope that's really freeing. Because you may have a child or a parent or a close friend who you have tried and tried and tried to get them to see their need for Jesus. And you are wondering, what more can I do? Well, you can entrust them to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, for others of you, this may be convicting because you might be like me. You might be the kind of person who thinks that they need to convince everyone else when they're wrong. You're the person who needs to show them their guilt or their their self-righteousness or their wrong beliefs. And if that's so, then we are trying to do the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is not to convict others. Our job is simply to love others in what we say and do. Now, allow me to talk to those of you in the room who wouldn't consider yourself Christians. Again, we're glad you're here this morning. But I'm going to bet that you have felt convicted about something in your life this week, maybe even this morning. And I make that bet because guilt is a universal human experience. And we all try to do something to deal with it. One of the ways that we can try to deal with it is by saying that the guilt that we feel is a false guilt. It's just caused by the standards that our parents held us to 
or the, the traditional values of our society. And if we can just free ourselves from these sources of supposedly false guilt, then we won't feel guilty anymore. But allow me to offer an alternative explanation. Maybe the reason that you feel guilty is because we all actually are. And maybe the fact that you feel that way is actually the Holy Spirit working in you right now, convicting you of what's true about you. Now again, God is not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. This is actually an act of love. The Holy Spirit convicts us so that we might turn from our unbelief, from our self-righteousness and our false judgment to Jesus, who is the only one who can truly free us from our guilt. That's the point of the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's to point us to Jesus. And that brings us to our last point this morning, which is the Holy Spirit clarifies. And what I mean by this is that the Holy Spirit brings our understanding of Jesus into greater clarity. So verse 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now this does not mean that the Holy Spirit is going to come and give essentially new revelation. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus is the revelation from God. At the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is called the Word of God. And Hebrews 1-2 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the truth. And so Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit would come and give a clearer understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's what verses 12 and 13 in our passage refer to. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why could the apostles not bear them now? Well, because they were on this side of the cross. But as verse 13 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would declare to them the things that are to come. That is, the unfolding consequences of Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation. So the Holy Spirit is going to guide them into a clarification of the truth about Jesus. Because, as Jesus says in verse 14, the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. This is what J.I. Packer calls the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been down to Centennial Park in Nashville, you probably have seen the full-scale replica of the Parthenon building from Athens. And if you've ever been there at night, you will have seen all of the floodlights surrounding the Parthenon building just lighting it up. What are their floodlights there for? They're there to help you see the Parthenon building when the darkness would have otherwise obscured it. Now, you're not supposed to be looking at the floodlights themselves, nor are the floodlights directing you to look at anything else in the park. No, the floodlights are there so that you can clearly behold the Parthenon in all of its glory, so that you can see all of its columns and capitals and carvings. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. It helps us to see Jesus in all of his glory. And what we should realize then is that whenever we receive guidance from the Holy Spirit, it is going to be Christ-centered. 
We may want the Holy Spirit to reveal to us things like what job we should take or where we should put our kids in school or even where we left our car keys. But Jesus is telling us right here, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. That is not his job. And it's not because God doesn't care about all of those things. It's because the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. It is to bring greater clarity about Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't guide us into all the truth about every detail of our lives. No, he guides us into all the truth about Jesus. But here we can ask, well, how does the Holy Spirit do that for us today? And in order to answer that question, we have to realize one very important fact. And that is that these words were originally spoken to the apostles. Whenever we read a passage like this, we may easily insert ourselves into Jesus' statement. So we read, He will guide you into all the truth, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And we think, well, that means me. But the you here is the apostles, not us. And so all of the scholars that I read agree that this promise is not primarily for us. Now that is not to say that the Holy Spirit's ministry of guiding and glorifying and clarifying is over. But the way that he does that now is through the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all the truth about Jesus, and then he divinely inspired them to write that truth down. And so now, God's word is the means by which the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into greater focus in our lives. And if you want a little more convincing of this, I would encourage you today to, to sit down and read Ephesians 5 and then Colossians 3. In these two chapters, there are passages that are nearly identical. But in one, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And in the other, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's because in Paul's mind, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of Christ, the Word which was given to us by the apostles. And so if you are longing for the Spirit to guide you, you don't need to go outside of the Bible. There are actually some popular Christian books that suggest that we can and should seek to hear God speaking to us apart from the Bible, but I don't think Jesus would agree with that. If we yearn for the Spirit's guidance, then we should simply pray that the Spirit would illuminate God's Word so that we can rightly understand it and then rightly apply it to our lives. Because just as the Spirit points us to Jesus, so does the Bible. The Bible is all about Jesus. It is just one grand story that tells us of God's redemption, which is fulfilled in Christ. And so everything that the Spirit does fits within that story. The Spirit convicts us of our rebellion against God and our need of Christ's redemption. The Spirit comes and applies Christ's redemption to us when we believe in him. And then as we grow in our faith, the Spirit clarifies the full implications of Christ's redemption in our lives. That is the Holy Spirit's job in the Christian life. It is to bring us into fuller communion with Christ, our Redeemer, so that we can love him more deeply, so that we can trust him more fully, so that we can serve him 
in all that we do and honor him with all that we are. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you send your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he has come into our lives, that he has convicted us of our need for Christ, and that he has clarified Christ's redemption in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you not only have sent your Holy Spirit to do that, but that you have revealed what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And I pray that as we study your word more, that we would become more aware of your Holy Spirit's operation in our lives. Lord, we may long to see the Holy Spirit manifest itself in spectacular ways, but this passage tells us, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is at work in some very ordinary ways, but ordinary ways that draw us closer to Jesus. We thank you for that. We pray these things in his name. Amen.